this is something to carp about. My guest this time is Peter Dugray, the local author who is with Carp Growers. And Peter, first off, I've been doing this podcast a while. Uh, I've done a couple of them about cannabis, but you're the guy I've been wanting to talk to, and I really thank you for joining me. Well, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Lo- local author might be generous. I uh, do have background writing. Um, I still write for Carpenteria Magazine and some for Coastal View at times. And we do. My company does a lot of writing for in both the cannabis and avocado industries. My role with Carp Growers is uh, executive director of the organization. It's a trade association of cannabis farms all in Carpinteria Valley. Quite a bit more than just an author. Well, I, I like author more, maybe. But yeah. <laughs> that's why it <laughs> says more, that there's more the, versatility there uh, on the website. Okay. Uh, I'm not by any means an expert. I'm I'm a casual consumer who looks at the headlines, so I don't want you to think that we're going to go into this with a lot of clinical discussion. But uh, to start with, Carp Growers, it's a coalition of local cannabis farms, yes? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So Carp there, um, big letters, Cannabis Association for Responsible Producers, um, which is what we set out to do in 2018. Uh, a lot of these farmers came together, uh, mostly farmers coming from the cut flower industry that's well established in Carp Valley. Um, they wanted to distinguish themselves as responsible players in the cannabis market. Uh, cannabis coming from a place of illegality then uh, became a regulated California industry, but uh, carried some baggage. So our mission was to, hey, let's make some um, good relationships, earn respect in our carpenteria by uh, being proactive, transparent, and setting best farming practices uh, in a way that's uh, in line with the community of Carpenteria. Cool. Uh, I had no idea that the capitalization of CARP was because of that. I really didn't know it stood for that. That's really cool. Yeah, maybe we got too clever, but uh, we, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, that, it is core to our mission to you know, uh, distinguish as responsible actors, so uh, we, we go with it. Okay. Well, you briefly told us a little bit about your background. Um, how did you get involved with CARP Growers, and, and how did your, uh, your training and education come to merge with this industry? Sure. Um, Well, personally, I am co-owner and founder of Two Trumpets Communications with my partner, Leah Boyd. Uh, We contract with Carp Growers and came into the project early early on uh, when the industry um, wanted to band together to sort of do a community outreach and community building um, and education. Um, So they contacted us and uh, things developed as there uh, from there. And now we're uh, four years old on our fifth year. Um, have majority of cannabis farms in Carpinteria on board with our with our programs and our and our plan. So it's about responsible growing, but it's also a lot about community outreach. And this is one of the more heartening stories I've seen. I lived in Santa Barbara six or seven years before I settled in Carb, and always paying attention to the story. And I was just amazed that you it took such a proactive uh, stance to to make it clear to the community that you are the good guys. Sure, and. We, I mean, we had some advantage in establishing the industry here um, because really it wasn't establishing an industry. It was changing changing plants in an established flower, cut flower industry, once uh, proudly called the flower basket of California, Carpinteria Valley, with all of our Dutch growers been here farming since the 60s. Um, so, yeah, so we, we were able to earn those relationships and sort of re- reintroduce some of the farmers that have been here forever. Mm-hmm. And the advantage there was they, they've, of course, you know, been around and been uh, instrumental in building a lot of great local nonprofits. Our flower industry was always there. So this, the story remains the same, but we just had to kind of re- reamplify who we are um, with a new plant. Okay. And for the, uh, the cut flower industry people who made the transition – uh, how difficult was that? Uh, the science is different. The plant is different. 
Yeah, well, I think that the facilities and the knowledge is definitely, uh, you can transfer that into to any plant. And of course, the, the knowledge base from cannabis farming and that um, was, you know, there's new knowledge brought in from different people into the cut flower industry and how to apply it. But most of these farms the uh, was real turnkey. It was, you know, drop it. You have your place for your pots, your irrigation systems. Instead of a Gerber daisy, now you have a cannabis sativa plant. Um and a lot of the concern, actually, an interesting point um, in what we like to talk about with environmental friendliness of cannabis plants is a lot of the transition from a cut flower to a cannabis plant involved scrubbing, remediating uh, greenhouses because the rules are different for cannabis. You must be squeaky clean environmentally, including pesticides and pathogens, and those plants are all tested when they leave the greenhouse. That's a, that's a difference, stark difference from a cut flower when it leaves the greenhouse. It doesn't have to go through that testing down to the parts per billion for um, a list of 60-something pesticides and um, just really exceeding all the cleanliness or uh, environmentally sustain environmental sustainability rules from other areas of ag. Cannabis, as a brand new area of ag, got a whole new set of rules. And those are rules that are created in you know 2016 to 2018, rather than maybe some of that were created in the 1950s or when we had a little bit less uh, maybe knowledge and appreciation about the environment. Okay. And from what I hear, what I've spoken to, uh, what I've heard from speaking to others is that the cut flower industry actually does more damage to the environment or is, is, you know, it, it consumes more water. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know if I would classify it as the cut flower industry or the people that are growing cut flowers and damage is probably maybe a little would, heavy of a word, whatever, but, whatever want to damage anything. Everything is very well regulated and a greenhouse farm by design is to be efficient, right? You have the protections from the harshest elements of mother nature. Um, and so you're able to grow efficiently. You're able to grow the closed loop irrigation system where if any water goes through the plant and the growing medium, that's recollected, recirculated uh, to the main water tanks and sterilized and sent right back out to the plants. So, I mean, so greenhouse farming always has uh, an environmental uh, advantage for being able to grow efficiently. So, but with cut flowers and with any other plant, with a vegetable, there's just looser regulations than there are with the new cannabis farming regulations. And we're going to get into that big time. Uh, and part of this heartening story and part of the saga, as I followed uh, from outside of town, is this group, the Citizens for Responsible Cannabis, uh, and their objections. And I want to know about your efforts to deal with them and this, uh, what was dubbed a peace agreement last year. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, the Coalition for Responsible Cannabis is a Santa Barbara County group. Um, their roles as a watchdog group saying, you know, let's pump the brakes on this uh, burgeoning cannabis industry. Um, we want to come to understand more how to protect neighbors of cannabis industry as a new industry. So, you know, they came on aggressively and took a pretty strong stance against cannabis. And really, without exception, any cannabis project that was presented before Santa Barbara County was an automatic appeal. Mm -hmm. The Coalition for Responsible Cannabis would say, hey, push the brakes. We're going to, you know, pick apart this project <laughs> and for whatever reason, find ways to tell the county that it's not in line with the community needs. So over the course of a year, um, between 29 or 2020 and 2021, uh, our board of directors for carp growers, including, uh, Tristan Strauss, our president at the time. Um, and then Autumn Shelton, who's the president after him, uh, really sat down and formed, uh, an understanding found common ground with this watchdog group. And really what it took was, um, them coming to the table and showing a, a complete transparent way with the watchdog group. Hey, 
we're in this because it's a benefit to the community. And this is what we can do really to work with you to show that uh, we are uh, funding and researching the control of odor in a proactive way and the best way to create peace and really uh, uh, support agriculture into the future in Carpinteria Valley is to work together. Um, and we couldn't be more thankful to the Coalition for Responsible Cannabis for standing by our side. And in fact, with all of our member projects under agreement with them and our work plan with them, instead of going before the Board of Supervisors or Planning Commission of the county now and saying, hey, stop, stop this cannabis project, they come and support our cannabis projects because we've signed an agreement and have shown uh, in partnership with them, create a pathway for how to grow cannabis in Carpinteria um, that's really in line with the community and uh, working with communities. So yeah. it was it was great. The, I mean, two groups that were light years apart are now uh, together in partnership. Frankly, I was very surprised to see it and very pleased. Uh, and it seems like uh, on, on the list of concerns they have, the odor uh, it seemed like took precedence over the drug itself. <laughs> they were they were so upset at the way it smelled, and and uh, both before and after I moved to Carpinteria, I, I, I took exception. I find that a pleasant odor. Okay, uh, you know some people find the the odor of oil to be a problem. Some people live near garlic up at Gilroy or onions in other agriculture. Yet you don't hear this hue and cry like these people were complaining about. And, and, and if I could, it extends to the local media. It's always referred to as a stench. It's always referred to as something objectionable. And my contention is that not everybody feels that way. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the experience of any odor is subjective to the individual who's experiencing it. There's no, like if you if you talk about uh, audio or sound and, you know, you measure it by decibels. So public policy can be don't be over X amount of decibels after a certain amount of time. With odor, it's about an experience that's subjective. Uh, it's a sense that isn't measurable based on its being objective. Um, we can say that the the odors emitted from cannabis are not harmful to people smelling them. We know that from thousands of people being on cannabis farms every day and essentially swimming in cannabis plants with no ill effect. Um, there's no pollen in a female cannabis plant. Um, but yeah, so the, the odor, and again, to the sub in a, in a subjective way, if there's a negative, if you walk into an experience with a negative impression of cannabis or whatever the odor source is, I think you'd be more likely to experience that odor in a, in a negative way. But that's not to diminish the seriousness of it. Like I said, we've been in you know years long conversation with this coalition for responsible cannabis, and you know we owe it to neighbors, and we've looked neighbors in the eye to say that this odor uh, odor containment is our number one priority, and it, re it remains so. It's a, it's a serious issue, but you're right; it becomes more tricky when it's subjective, and not everyone experiences it the same way. How do you measure what's too much when you don't really know? Right. Uh, the decibel uh, analogy is brilliant. Uh, a strong smell is a strong smell, whether it's good or bad. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, I if, get you there. And if you want to get technical, the the way and we do a lot of research and development and, and really advancement of the science of cannabis odors internally in our organization. Um, and the way to measure odors and to define them in the most objective way is really you you this and this sound this sounds crude. Uh, you bag it up, you send it off certified to a laboratory with people with trained noses mm -hmm. who are certified odor 
detectors. And what they do is open the bag and they have their uniform way of describing an odor and the strength of an odor. And it's actually the human nose from the certified uh, people in the, in the odor laboratory who give us the readings and tell us more about uh, the characteristics of our odor and strength and, and those types of things. So yeah, and it's an, it's an expensive process to take those odor samples, say around the clock, if you're doing a specific study, ship them out to Chicago or wherever the laboratory is and wait for those readings. But that's, that's the state of science on, on odor. And that's what we use to, uh, understand the cannabis plant odor. Okay. And talk about an expense. Uh, it seems like the way you have achieved peace in the Valley, so to speak, is, uh, that growers have agreed to spend enormous amounts of money on systems to neutralize the odor. Um, that's an, that's a very expensive process. And, and what I wonder is if, uh, more of the community were more generally supportive of legalization and cannabis in general, would the growers really have to spend all that extra money? Because we're going to get to this in a little bit. It's just one more expense in the supply chain for cannabis. Sure. I mean, the more, the more expensive, expensive it is to grow regulated cannabis in California, the more challenging it is to uh, make a functioning and sustainable marketplace for legal cannabis, because there already was a built-in unregulated cannabis market that many people used and established over decades. Um, so that's still out there. And in fact, it's a lot cheaper to grow cannabis in an unregulated market without the taxes and, and overhead of uh, solving um, issues like like an odor. Uh, it is an expensive uh, endeavor to solve odor in a greenhouse setting where um, the greenhouses must uh, vent to the open air. Uh, the Pacific Ocean is a great air conditioner. The sunshine is a great power uh, for growing plants. But to make that system efficient, um, they they can't be closed greenhouses. That makes that gives you a very expensive uh, air conditioning bill, mm -hmm. among other things, right. uh, for you know controlling the um, environment in the greenhouse. And frankly, I don't even think Carpinteria Valley could. Uh, power uh, ACs in all, in all these greenhouses. It just isn't, the grid's not set up for it. Um, we find that even some of the uh, more intensive odor abatement systems, currently the grid's not set up for them. So it's a real constraint running uh, air treatment um, in large scale commercial plant processing greenhouses or plant growing greenhouses. And so to treat that level of air takes takes power. So there's a balance there. Like what what's the give and take both for expense and what uh, a cannabis farm can afford and what a cannabis farm can power um, practically and um, what's good for the environment. Those are all factors that deserve consideration as well. Um, the number one factor is, you know, if neighbors are having legitimate problems, we need to um, do our best to um, support farms in uh, advancing their odor control technology and best practices and uh, really being responsible for monitoring where those cannabis odors are come from and uh, buttoning them up as much as possible. Okay. As far as the science and the testing of the soil and the uh, nature of the plants in general, um, do most of the growers locally have somebody on staff for that or do they tend to consult out uh, to scientists? We are a collection or an association of farms. Everyone has their own business models, their own way of growing cannabis. Um, there's trade secrets among our farms. That, you know, the, the line of cooperation only goes so far because they are competitive in a California market mm -hmm. together. Um, but yeah, so SCS Engineers is one firm that we work for time work with time and again. As they're our consultant for all the odor research and development. Um, they like us a lot for the what we invest in uh, advancing odor science on cannabis. They've been a key player in that. And I'm sure that they'll 
they'll get business in other regions in the United States as time goes on because they're really the forefront of that. So yeah, a lot of the technical stuff gets consulted out, but also um, a lot of farms in town um, have their own engineers on staff, have their own uh, chemical chemistry experts and that type of thing and of course the agricultural history from cut flower and and all the all the consultants and necessary uh, supporters of the cut flower and ag greenhouse ag industry and carpentry remain the same and um, and along with the reinvigoration of local greenhouse farming that came with changing the cannabis plant i'm sure that those uh ancillary businesses supporting the industry are, are doing better now as well for consultants and you know um how to get better yields, how to, you know, really dive into the science of horticulture to uh, make yourself have better plants and um, get better results with the consumers in the end for growing, you know, fresh cannabis on the California coast. It's something to carp about. My guest is Peter DeGray with Carp Growers, and we'll be back in just a minute. Here's an important message from Rad and this station. No words exchange, no time to exchange. Hello, this is Dave from the Dave Matthews Band for Rad. When you go out and party, get drunk, then drive, you're not only loaded, you're a loaded weapon. When you celebrate, designate. Choose a designated driver. Remember, music lives and so should you. And we're back with Peter DeGray, Executive Director of Carp Growers, which we learned is... C-A-R-P stands for? The Cannabis Association for Responsible Producers, because, uh, you know, we've always distinguished ourselves as responsible, transparent, proactive community players in cannabis farming. All right. Love it. Uh, we have a pair of problems in the industry. I'd like to shift and talk a little bit about uh, the cannabis industry in general, uh, and a pair of problems that would seem to be in conflict with growers being taxed just for growing. But we hear there's a glut of cannabis as well. So how do these issues uh, interconnect? It would seem like growers wouldn't want to grow more than they would want to pay taxes on. Yet here they are with what we hear is way too much weed, and that's forcing prices down at dispensaries. It's like um, this is all in motion right now. Yeah. I mean, there, are, there are, it's a two-part problem that's uh, – really holding back the regulated California cannabis industry right now. One is overtaxation and uh, regulation that, was, you know, came out of just creating an industry that was once unregulated. And, you know, there's some growing pains there. And the other is the um, lack of access to regulated cannabis. Uh, the, the current estimate is that two-thirds of the California cannabis market is still in the unregulated market. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carpinteria, I've used this before, um, is a, really a prime example, um, if you look at it, and microcosm of the issue of having um, not having enough access to cannabis. Because as we know, carp- what we're talking about is Carpinteria Valley cannabis, all of which is grown in Santa Barbara County jurisdiction. Just over the line um, from where the cannabis farms are is the city of Carpinteria, where um, cannabis retail is in fact banned by city ordinance. And even growing six plants in your outdoor residential yard is banned by the city of Carpinteria. I did so, not know that. So with the with the legalization of cannabis coming from voters in 2016, um, it opened the door for, you know, California must have legal cannabis after that date, but it opened the door and allowed for every locality to design its own um, cannabis ordinances. Um, and most took a wait and see approach. There was, you know, some political resistance and it wasn't always popular to say, hey, we're going to be a place where that opens our arms to cannabis because, um, you know, 
40% of voters just a year before had said, in fact, we want cannabis to be illegal and people to use it to go to jail. Yeah. So you go from that uh, environment to just a few years later where, hey, cannabis is legal, you're going to still have some pretty stiff resistance because the, there's the folks that still think that our friendly farmers in town should be in jail for what they do. And in fact, in other places in the United States, there remain up to 40,000 people in jail for cannabis. So that, not to divert to that, but it's a, it's a stiff a stiff opposition if it's entrenched to the point of uh, criminality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of led to this patchwork wait and see approach in the California landscape for legalization. So in fact, personal use is fine, but in most counties in the state, you still can't buy it in a regulated manner unless it's delivery. You can't have a storefront. And, uh, I, and I had heard that the one universal thing was the six plants deal. So in Carpinteria, it has to be indoors? Right. Well, Carpinteria is a unique place because early, you know, right around when the... Um, Cannabis ordinance was drafted locally in the city of Carpinteria. That's right at the height of the um, odor detection in Carpinteria. We had a real problem. You could smell it um, even downtown Carpinteria sometimes, which yeah. does, doesn't happen anymore. Or I mean, I haven't experienced that in years. So there's been a lot of work since then to contain the commercial cannabis odor. Uh, unfortunately, the residential cannabis in your backyard became something that was banned. I'm not even sure that everyone knows about that. They might just assume they can grow it on their own and don't get enforced upon. But yeah, so if people in Carpinteria, city of Carpinteria, technically, yes, you may have your six plants as a California resident at home. They just have to be inside because the odor was the prevailing uh, reason to make that decision at the time in 2018. I see. Uh, How much of this is because of the way Prop 64 was written? Um, Did the drafters do an adequate job anticipating supply and demand? Because let's get right down to the bottom line. Supply and demand is is almost like a crisis issue with the industry right now. Sure. And I, well, I think that, you know, a lot of the incentive that voters had to um, legalize and regulate cannabis was the tax incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, cannabis was seen, and rightfully so, it's generated a lot of income. So those taxes were popular among voters who want to legalize cannabis and rather than pay for enforcement and crim- criminalization of the plant, in fact, generate money for the you know programs that the, government, the public agencies run. Um, so maybe we got a, got a little bit too hopeful about how quickly the regulated market would develop and uh, how quickly the unregulated market would go away. So if the regulated market had 100% market share in California, maybe the tax system would work out a little bit better. But we're not there because the incentive at this point lies in the unregulated market where you don't have to pay taxes or um, tag every plant or send it to a testing lab and have, you know, product analyze under the strictest of uh, cleanliness standards. So you just, if you're not in that pathway, you save money the whole way. And then on the other end, the consumer who may even be more inclined to buy regulated cannabis, it's protected, it's cleaner, all those things are put in there for the consumer. Um, You might not know what you're getting in the unregulated market, but then the consumer looks around and tries to find a place to find regulated and they they can't find it. So the, the unregulated market is easier to get at and to purchase cannabis from at this point still. so Yeah, it's a nasty little catch-22, isn't it? I mean, uh, the, the regulation and taxing that came out of Prop 64 has actually driven people to the unregulated market because it makes the price go up. Sure. It's just down to the bottom line. Yeah, and, and after last year, I mean, the prices now for cannabis are probably half of what they were two years ago in the wholesale market, if, if that. And... Um, I think it just became more pronounced and evident to, even to regulators that, you know, to sustain this industry, there has to be some relief. And we're, we're very hopeful that 2022 is a year that California um, will provide some 
tax relief for cannabis cultivation. That right now there's a cultivation tax at $160 a pound. Mm. So whether you're selling your pound for $1,000 or $160, $160 goes straight to California. Um, and you can do the math on that, 160 is all of it. Um, so there's movement to at least uh, suspend the cultivation tax. We're hopeful that, that it'll happen and um, uh, our legislators will hear that, you know, there's no cash if um, there, there's no tax revenue if there's no market. So if it's not sold, right? right. Um, right. Yeah, and maybe there maybe there can be some and and maybe some of the wait and see approach like the city of Carpinteria took with uh, retail. Maybe that you know they've they've seen that cannabis farmers and the cannabis industry is responsible. So now the citizenry it may be more popular to say, hey, we need a cannabis shop in town um, anywhere in the state that currently doesn't have access. Okay, how much of an example are other states setting? How much are you looking at the models in Colorado, Oregon, Washington, uh, because we hear stories, you know, we hear stories that uh, they experience gluts as well because of a, a mismatch in, in supply and demand and, you know, ounces going for $50 in Oregon. We're hearing all kinds of sure. stories that uh, the prices got driven down by the exact things we're talking about. So are other models providing any any uh, uh, example or help in, in the way forward? I think every state that's been a front runner in legalization has experienced the same thing, the, the challenge of coming out of an unregulated to a regulated market. Um, I can tell you that the number of retail shops in places like Oregon and Washington and Colorado far exceeds per capita what there is in California. For example, I think in San Jose, um, you know, there's over a million people, but there's only like 10 cannabis shops mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, hundreds of liquor stores for, you know, comparison. So it's just the access issue is, is a real problem. And those other states are doing better, but they're also, you know, more mature markets at this point than California. California is still the mo most valuable cannabis market in the world. It's just a matter of, of continuing to, you know, push it past its formative years and to really have it be established and work for every uh, every part of the supply chain, really. Just, yeah, I had, I'd seen a headline, read a little story that uh, in Oregon, it's one dispensary for every 6,200 residents. In California, it's one for every 29,000 residents. Yeah, exactly. So that gets down to the county city patchwork quilt. I came from Nevada. I have lots of friends that still live there. And to me, it seems like they have a pretty good handle on it. Uh, it's all grown there. They can only sell Nevada weed. And there are only so many places it can be sold. Uh, it's a fraction of what we have here, so it's easier to monitor and cap the supply. But the supply-demand issue that, that uh, keeps, keeps coming to the fore seems like they knew going in exactly how much should be grown. Right. As, so they don't have a big surplus, you know? Yeah. I, every every state is in it for themselves at this point. You know, you can't ship. There's no interstate um, commerce with cannabis. Yeah. Nevada also has a huge tourism industry. So now if you go to Las Vegas, in addition to everything else you want to get there, you can get some, some Nevada-grown cannabis. It's crazy. It's crazy. They have whole strip malls dedicated. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't I haven't been, but I believe you. <laughs> it is. It's nuts. There's yeah. there are a couple strip malls that have uh, on, on the left where to get your license, then the dispensary, then the head shop, and then the submarine sandwich shop. <laughs> yeah, and I and I think acceptance um, will lead to accessibility in the, in the long run. We're already becoming more of an acceptable industry. So as as that tide turns and more. Uh, more of the decision makers at the local levels will hear that and say, okay, we're ready to go. So, and it's a matter of time, but I, I think the industry needs urgent action this year. So, yeah. And uh, that peace agreement uh, just becomes that much more huge sure. uh, in terms of what we're talking about. Right. And now, 
but now with counties, like so with Humboldt County and uh, Monterey County, which also have cannabis production. So in addition to the state layer of taxation, there's county layer. Santa Barbara County charges cultivators. Our, our cultivators in Carpentry Valley pay 4% of gross sales um, right out the farm door. Um, and that's, you know, that's a percentage of gross sales. But in Monterey and Humboldt County, they're suspending their local cannabis taxes or uh, adjusting them down. So that, in fact, makes it uh, more difficult for Santa Barbara farmers to compete in the California market because uh, our county hasn't uh, followed suit and provided some tax relief. Am I mistaken in that there are virtually no other plants that are taxed this way? Yeah, there's, I mean, I work a lot in avocados. There, a cultivation tax doesn't exist elsewhere in, in agriculture. That's right. Uh, it's, it's elsewhere. It's, you know, it's down the supply chain um, in excise or in, at the retail end. But uh, cult- cultivators aren't responsible for taxes. In fact, and you talk about supply and demand. Every every ag commodity has supply and demand uh, issues. And, you know, if there's, in, I work a lot in avocados with the California Avocado Society. And a lot of what we do is index, pricing index for farmers to decide when to harvest because. Because you know the price swings even in avocado based on you know how much how much fruits coming in from Mexico, how much fruits coming from Peru, how much fruit California can grow that year. So you know agriculture, ag commodities have price swings based on supply and demand. Um, it's just that you know can, a cannabis farmer, as opposed to other ag that gets subsidies from from the government, a cannabis farmer actually pays taxes um, right out the door, and that kind of disrupts the supply chain right at the very start. Yeah, that's a discriminatory thing on its face. Uh, so I guess the, uh, the, the the broader answer I'm getting from you is that time should solve these issues sure. as time yeah. goes by. Yeah, I mean, the tax incentive for the public does, a, I mean, there's a lot of great things. It does, you know, cannabis taxes pay for roads. They, they pay for early childhood development. During the pandemic in Santa Barbara County, the cannabis tax became a greater share of county funding than the bed tax or sales tax mm-hmm. um, because, you know, there wasn't a lot of business going on during the height of the pandemic. Um, so yeah, the cannabis tax has been important, and that's paid off for the you know the public promise of uh, taxes in the regulated market uh, supporting uh, all of our shared needs um, as a county or as a state. But uh, there's there is a breaking point, and I think that the rallying cry from the industry right now is that we're there. Okay, yeah. talking cannabis with Peter Dugray of Carp Growers, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is novelist Tom Robbins. When my mother was diagnosed with glaucoma. Her conservative Virginia physician told her there was only one treatment that might ease her pain and save her eyesight. That treatment was medical marijuana, which he could not prescribe. I offered to get her some and teach her how to use it effectively, but my father objected because marijuana was against the law. So my mother, who loved to read and walk in nature, was condemned to grow cruelly unnecessarily blind. Tragedies like this happen all the time, but they don't have to keep happening. To learn more about medical marijuana, call the Marijuana Policy Project at 1-877-JOIN-MPP or visit them on the web at mpp.org. And we're back. We're talking with Peter Dugray, the executive director of CARP Growers here in Carpinteria. Uh, Now here in CARP, Good example, as you said, of that patchwork quilt mentality of letting counties and cities and communities decide uh, against the broader state law of Proposition 64 having been uh, passed. Ventura County, another example, the two biggest cities in the county don't have dispensaries. 
Yeah. Uh, and Ventura tends to be a little more conservative, so I kind of get it. Uh, but like I said, it's, it's like they're watching a lot of dollars fly out the window by everybody going to Port Wanimi and Ojai instead. Sure. Yeah, and in Santa Barbara County is Lompoc. Right. And the cities that were the front front runners and were were more realistic in viewing cannabis and what it meant as a legal industry. You know, there's it, it's the progression. At the beginning, it's like, oh, this is cartel. This is criminal. What what about the kids? How you know, some some legitimate um, based on historical cannabis. But so that's where carp growers and groups like ours come from is, you know, public education. Um, you know, we heard we heard claims at the beginning of the commercial cannabis coming online here that property values would tank, tourists wouldn't come here anymore, the reputation of Santa Barbara's at stake. Um, it's bad for the environment, like from every angle possible. So, you know, over the years, we've seen property values, at, you know, places that are half a block from a cannabis greenhouse in Carpinteria, where at the beginning of this might have been going for 800,000 or now going for twice that. So I think that's pretty good evidence that cannabis isn't making Carpinteria have a bad reputation or be uninhabitable in some way. In fact, it's only become more so that way. And I think that our tourists at the state park and on the beaches aren't even, most of them are not even aware that cannabis is farmed in town. And frankly, they might not care. And that would be the goal for cannabis farming uh, farmers locally altogether, just to not to go about business and not be noticed. The odor is what makes, is what makes it well known or had made it well known that, you know, cannabis is here. So, um, you know, in a perfect world, we just go about business as, as a cut flower farmer would and uh, follow the rules and be good neighbors. And I think that we're at a place where people understand uh, cannabis farming and carpentry as really a way to prolong agriculture, to buffer the city from overdevelopment and to, um, have a really good opportunity, to, uh, economic opportunity that not every place has. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I'd like to talk just for a little bit about the workers at the at the cannabis farms uh, locally and, and whatever your knowledge would be uh, as far as elsewhere. I don't hear a lot of complaining. Are they union? Uh, it, it seems to me as a layman that they're probably pretty well treated because you just don't hear any, any complaints that they're not. Yeah. Um, I, as far as unionization, I'm not positive. I, I know that unions play some role uh, in the along the supply chain in cannabis, but I'm not sure for labor in the um, cultivation. Um, I do know that some of the complaints I have heard in just in ag in general in our area is that uh, the labor force wants to work in cannabis because the the pay is better on average and yet your entry is better and then you know there's opportunities for growth in cannabis a lot of the employees just have been holdover from the cut flower industry you know there have been people employed in these cannabis green or in these uh, local greenhouses for decades that re remain here um, I can tell you one thing as far as um, ag labor goes cannabis is spectacular well greenhouse farm cannabis it's a year-round job um, there's they harvest year round. There's no ebb and flow in that. It's very clean because they're not spraying a bunch of dangerous chemicals on the plants like they do in a lot of other ag. And um, yeah, the, so the I mean the more employee retention is very important to cannabis farms um, because you have to remain operational and you don't want to see your. Um, there's been a lot, a lot of trouble finding employment in ag and really every other sector right now. So I think that empl employee retention is important for uh, the smooth flow of local farms and uh, employees seem to gravitate toward this industry versus other parts of the ag sector. I think that the, the key part of your answer was that the pay is better. Yeah. Right hey. there, they're treating the workers better and, sure. uh, and you're going to have fewer complaints. Right. Does the industry have a formal stance about home growing? 
um, it would seem to me uh, that you, since you have this option now legally, uh, you know, a lot of people enjoy doing it. Uh, there is probably now increased interest in, in doing that. Um, and that arguably cuts into your bottom line, but not very much. So I'm wondering, is there any kind of formal stance, at least that people should do it safely or... I mean, as far as carp growers in our industry group, no. Um, I think that cannabis farmers like people who like cannabis, as and um, you know, most of the people who are in cannabis farming are, are in it for because they they like the plant, the mm-hmm. owners of the companies, and you know. Um, so I think that people people at home who want to grow uh, their own cannabis plants would be like minded and uh, accepted by the cannabis industry. Um, and if you're if you're growing great, maybe come apply for a job. Oh, okay. <laughs> Got you. Uh, well, what is next? Uh, the Carpinteria Market's getting its dispensary soon. It's going to be just across the county line, Santa Claus Lane there. So what else is on the horizon for the industry locally? So over the past four years plus, we've spent a lot of time um, getting behind nonprofits in the area that provide essential services for youth or child care, for senior services, for um, home and food insecurity and those types of things. So, you know, our our goal and our what we will do is maintain relationships with nonprofits that we've formed in our community partnerships, um, including Carpenter Skate Park. Um, and a lot of our focus at this point, um, and I think you can probably tell by the topics we hit on in this conversation, is increasing our voice in Sacramento right. and at the state level and trying to find relief and to really um, to secure that strong footing that we've worked so hard um, to establish over the last four years and um, to really have Santa Barbara coastal cannabis farmers stand out as a region that's um, responsible farmers and a culture of compassion, corporate stewardship, all the things that we've built our reputation around. Okay. Uh, While we're talking about it, uh, legislature meets every year in California, right? Sure. Okay. Is the effort underway now to draft something in the way of changes? And are you part of a larger group that is going to petition Sacramento to tweak and fine tune what came out of Prop 64? Sure. Yeah, we've and we follow that very closely. And a lot of that conversation is coming to head right now. We uh, work with the California Cannabis Industry Association, which um, really tries to steer um, a diverse level, a diverse crowd of uh, cannabis interest at, from cultivators to retail to everything in between. Um, so we follow them, work with other regional groups, and really just try to get everyone singing from the same sheet of music in the California cannabis industry that um, relief is necessary for this experiment to work. Um, tax revenues will only get better with relief because a strong industry means um, if you're taxing by a percentage, then you get a bigger percentage of a bigger pie. Um, for state and county coffers. Um, so yeah, a lot of the focus is, you know, maintain what we are locally and um, the partnerships that we've created and are proud of in the community and then to uh, build a better voice in both making change in Sacramento and raising the profile somewhat of coastal coastal grown cannabis in Santa Barbara County. Okay, so we've had six years of trial and error, so it's time to work on the errors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it, it's totally understandable that um, not everything is is anticipated as markets change uh, when you try to launch a brand new market. So yeah. there's there's not a lot. It's not it's not a finger pointing perspective. It's a hey, let's get together and uh, make this right. Carp in general, you just defined carp in general. Uh, part of your mission, obviously, has been to fit in as another productive element of our community. I got to think you feel you're accomplishing that. Um, yeah, I think that most people understand what what 
carp growers means as far as uh, being transparent and proactive in the community. They better understand now that cannabis farming doesn't represent a threat or a danger. It actually can represent a positive thing. So I think that um, would be a majority uh, opinion locally. Um, we don't have a poll on that or anything, but I think that we've come a long way. Okay. The website is carpgrowers.org. You can find out about Peter's work and the work of uh, all of our local cannabis farms. Uh, like I said, to be among the good guys and be seen that way. Uh, Peter, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, joining me on Something to Carp About and catching us up on this critical issue. Thank you for having me, Dennis. A lot of fun. Something to Carp About is now available wherever you get your podcasts, including Stitcher, Podomatic, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're sponsored by Pacific Prairie Productions, specializing in radio syndication and podcast production. Call 805-500-3144. Talk to you next time. I'm Dennis Mitchell.